We are in a, a different kind of series for the next several weeks. Starting last week, I'm going to go to this passage and that is all about, I'm, I'm about to explain. But if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're going to begin today in Ephesians chapter 4. We're really going to look at the whole book of Ephesians in many of its parts, but we're going to start here and just read the first six verses um, Yeah, read the six verses of Ephesians chapter 4. The inspiring title of the sermon today is Doctrine. See if won you over already. Doctrine. Ideas have consequences. Or as Dr. Howe used to say, Bad ideas have victims. Okay, Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, you have given this word that we might uh, know you truly, that uh, it might give to us doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness as it's written, that we might be complete and thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So we pray that you would bless it to us now by your Spirit. Teach us these oracles of God, that we might uh, have wisdom to dwell in the midst of a confusing and a trying time, in a, uh, an age where wisdom has fallen and where Uh, words have lost their meaning. We pray that you would teach us your truth for Christ's sake. Amen. The Reverend Raphael Warnock, whom some of you will know, is the freshman U.S. Senator from Georgia and also pastor of Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, made a tweet on his Twitter account the April before last. He posted this short sentence. The meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whether you are Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. He later deleted the tweet, but not before receiving strong criticism from some and an equally strong defense from others. In his defense... Jason Evans, up here at the University of Virginia, a Baptist minister and a theologian himself. He wrote a newspaper article to explain this controversy and how it is that different theories of the resurrection are held in the church today, as he put it. Over the years, Christians have engaged in passionate debates over this central doctrine of the Christian faith, two major approaches, uh, major approaches emerged. The liberal view, he writes, and the conservative or traditional view. Just like all other denominations, Baptists are divided on the issue of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. 
For example, he writes, in his autobiography, the late civil rights leader, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., explains that in his early adolescence, he denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus. For King, the experience of the early followers of Jesus was at the root of their belief in his resurrection. Quoting, he quotes King, they had been captivated by the magnetic power of his personality, King argued. This basic experience, King said, led to the faith that he could never die. In other words, the bodily resurrection of Jesus simply is the outward expression, he says, of early Christian experience, not an actual or at least verifiable event in human history. I, I see you looking at me like, what in the world does that mean? What is going on here? Um, how can people, many eminent people apparently, still say they believe in the resurrection if they say that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead? Is that not the definition of the word? What is this new teaching that has swept the church, that has become the dominant faith of the church in the West, that is indeed believed by so many of our friends and loved ones, which apparently still uses Christian terminology, but changes the meaning of all the important words. This was very, very hard to understand when it first appeared 100 years ago. You think it's hard now. When it first came into the church, this teaching that called itself liberal and came in like a flood, people didn't know what to think. And this summer, I hope to help you sort it out with a little help from my friend. As I explained last week, it's been my habit for some years now during the summer months when people are in and out and going on vacation to present to you some of the most important ideas from some of the most important books ever written. And this year, to mark its 100th anniversary, we're going to go through some ideas from Gresham Machen's book called Christianity and Liberalism, named one of the top 100 books of the 20th century by Christianity Today, one of the top 100 books of the millennium by World Magazine. Wow. And the title of the book really says it all. Christianity and liberalism. Because when German liberalism was first taking hold in the American church, Machen was one of those few men who had studied in Germany under the leading liberal teachers in the world and understood what was coming from the inside out, who had wrestled with this already and needed to be able to explain it to others. As a matter of fact, Machen, for a while, was completely taken in. He was attracted to the claims, captivated by the apparently deep devotion that these German men had to Christ. Now, they denied practically every Christian doctrine, but they had remarkable lives of devotion that impressed Machen. And yet... 
he came to understand that what they were teaching was not just a little theory here and a little theory there. That what they were teaching was nothing less than another religion. A natural rather than supernatural religion. Natural rather than supernatural. Which used all the same words, but gave them a different understanding. Resurrection, God, man, sin, Christ, and so forth. And these make up the chapters in his book. Last week, we just considered some of the great introductory ideas from his chapter 1. And today, we'll take up chapter 2 that has the inspiring title, Doctrine. And by uh, doctrine, children, by the way, doctrine is just the old word for teaching. Same same word in the original, as a matter of fact. But, But doctrine, it does sound like a cold word to us today, doesn't it? in part because of the success of liberalism. It's a biblical word that's been tarnished. You see, there was a saying that used to be very popular with the crowd who called themselves liberal. The saying went like this, Christianity is a life, not a doctrine. Hmm. Christianity is a life, not a doctrine. Is that right? And can we have one without the other? Well, that'll be the subject of our study today. So let's go to the scriptures. Today I started reading to you halfway into the letter to the Ephesians. And do you know how this letter is laid out, generally speaking? There's two parts to this beautiful letter. In the first half, up to right before where I started reading, There was only one command, one imperative, one verse that told us something to do. And that was back in chapter 2, verse 11, the command that we should remember. Remember who you were before the grace of God came to you. Remember what it was like to be without God, and without hope in the world, without Christ. That's the only thing that we're told to do in the whole first half of this letter. The first half isn't about what we are to do for God. It teaches us all that God has done for us. Beginning back in chapter 1, I'll just give you a sample of three verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Three beautiful chapters about how God has redeemed us in Christ through the incarnation, suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord. He explains how when we were dead in transgressions and sins, without hope and without God in the world, he gave us life. He brought us into the family of God. He saved us by his grace and brought us into his household, the church. And then in the second half of the book, 
we are told how we might therefore live in the light of all that God has done. In the light of such a mighty love from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I began in verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And then commands come very fast, rapid fire, one after the other. This is how you are therefore to live. And that's what follows in the last three chapters, an explanation of the Christian life. This is the first thing I want you to notice. Doctrine before duty. The gospel of God's grace, which leads to a life of God's service. And this is very important because it's the death of legalism. The death of this terrible idea that our salvation and standing with God is based on what we have first done. No, no, no. Wrong order. Paul explained it this way very explicitly in chapter 2, verse 8. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. And what we have before us then is something that's very common, perfectly characteristic of the Bible in general, and it's the first thing that I want you to see today, that there are these two great areas of biblical truth that are set together, doctrine and life, an account of what God has done for us and our salvation, and an account of what we are to do for God in working out that salvation, that we, we have taught what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's the first thing I want you to see. And the second thing is the connection that he gives between these two, summarized in the word therefore, which begins chapter 4. You find it not only here, but Romans 12, verse 1, same, same pattern, Colossians 3, verse 1. Time and time again, Paul and the other writers make this connection to show us that what we have been taught to believe, doctrine, informs us of how we are therefore taught to live life. So let me just give you a few examples in chapter 4. Let's just... Uh, Look at the end of the chapter here for uh, illustra illustrations here. Chapter 4, verse 32, where we read, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Why should Christians be a forgiving people? It's hard to forgive. Well, Paul covered it back in chapter 1. Look, all of your sins were before him, and God in Christ forgave you. Is that not a great thing, a wonderful thing? Therefore, you are to forgive others. What we believe directs us in how we are to live. Next verse here, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself. 
for us. Same pattern. Why should Christians be godly and loving people? Um, because it's good, because it's right, benefits society. Well, he gave us the reasons in the first half of the book. Look, we have become children of God, predestined to adoption. We have been loved with a very, very great love. And as dear children, we are to imitate God. Walking in love as Christ loved us. You see the doctrine that leads us to duty. Next verse, chapter 5, verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be even named among you as is fitting for saints. Perhaps fornication is not a common word anymore. He means sexual immorality of all kinds. Why should we not plunge in with the sexual immorality and licentiousness of the world? Because we'll get a disease? Because it's bad for human flourishing? Oh, no, he's got a much, much, much more important, much higher motivation. He covered it back at the beginning of the book. But God chose us to be holy. He set us apart to be holy as he is holy by the very blood of his son. And so you see at every point, we are being called here not to work for, but to work out our salvation, to live in light of what we've been taught that God has freely forgiven us in Christ and blessed us with every spiritual blessing in him, chapters 1 through 3. And this becomes not only the direction, but the motivation of a new life in him as empowered by the Holy Spirit, chapters 4 through 6. Do you see the gospel order of things? Because the order is extremely important. A false gospel puts these things in reverse order. It says, you live how you're supposed to live, and then God will do his part and save you accordingly. The gospel puts those things right. The order is extremely important. The connection, extremely important. Every one of you old enough to remember the Watergate hearings that brought down the Nixon presidency will remember the question that was asked again and again to one White House staffer after another. What did he know and when did he know it? Because the order of things is sometimes as important as the things themselves, and that's certainly true in the Bible. Before we are told to do anything, we must know. We must be taught what God has done. This is the freedom of our souls. Doctrine comes before duty. Faith before life. That was my first point and my second point. At every point, these things are intimately connected and joined together. The one is the reason for the other. And so without this teaching, people may, for example, still live a life of, of sexual purity. Is that enough? Is that what God really wants? God desires more than a holy life. God would have us receive his love and return it to him as dear children. He would have us live by grace 
and live in view of His mercies. The Lord doesn't want slaves who merely obey. He would have us be dear children who therefore imitate our beloved Father. That is all the difference in the world, people. Without this teaching, yes, of course, someone can still live a life of purity. And in the society, that may even last a generation or two. And societal tradition and how you were raised may keep things the same for a time. You know, I was raised this way. I was raised that we don't do that. Might last a generation. I can remember with shame as I was being disobedient to my father and, and my, my dad kind of pleading with me said, David, I, I, I raised you differently. I saw right through that. Wasn't rude to my dad, but I thought to myself, so what? Without the doctrine, I tell you, people sooner or later will lose the duty. Without these great and glorious reasons, people's lives may continue the same for a time. But a big change is coming. With these things in mind, I'd like us to consider now the three challenges of liberalism. Machen, of course, as usual, has much more to say. And uh, if you're going to be away, away for vacation, why not get the book? It's free online. You can read it on your device and find out so much more than what I can tell you today. But I'm going to take up three challenges now of liberalism in light of this. See if, see if this answers it. Doctrine versus life, and doctrine versus Christ, and Paul versus Christ. That's what we'll be looking at now. First, doctrine versus Christ. The first challenge. Christianity is a life, they said, not a doctrine. Hmm. Well, Machen says, look, we read in the Bible that from the beginning, Christianity was not merely a life as distinguished from a doctrine. Uh, don't misunderstand, he says, it certainly was a, a strange new kind of life, and anybody who came into contact with those early Christians recognized that they were living an entirely different sort of life from the people around them. Yes, it's perfectly clear that the first Christians were living a new type of life, a, str a life of strange purity and strange unselfishness. But how was that type of life produced? They produced a new type of life, he wrote, by the proclamation of a piece of news. Christ died. That's history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. And without these two elements, history and doctrine, it, it doesn't matter what you believe. Sorry. Without these two elements, he writes, I'm sorry, joined in a union 
indissoluble, there is no Christianity. So some people say, say today, look, it doesn't matter what you believe, only how you live. Look, you're fooling yourself if you think that well, you, what you believe is the important thing. What God really wants is a, is a good life. That's the triumph of liberalism. And when they say that, they're fooling themselves. They're cutting out the very heart of a godly life of what we've been taught, this great gospel of the goodness of our God, of a living Lord, not just living in our thoughts and our hearts. So in our, multural, in our multural, multicultural world, when people say that what really matters in religion is a good life, that is the triumph of liberalism, and you know where to take them. Machen even says in this chapter, this is the most fundamental difference between liberalism and Christianity. Liberalism is altogether in the imperative mood. It just says do, 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 do. While Christianity begins with a triumphant indicative, what God has done. Liberalism appeals to man's will, keep the golden rule, while Christianity announces first a gracious act of God. So let me give you one practical example before we move on. Like, it doesn't matter if we think that Jesus actually rose from the dead alive. He writes, there was one time only when the disciples lived, like you liberal teachers are living, merely on the memory of Jesus. And when was that? It was a gloomy, desperate time. It was three sad days after the crucifixion. Then and then only did Jesus' disciples regard him merely as a blessed memory. Well, we trusted, they said, that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. We trusted, but now our trust is gone. Shall we remain, Machen asks, with modern liberalism forever in the gloom of those sad days? When they thought he was dead, living only on in their hearts, how sad how fearful they were. What was it that within a few days transformed a band of mourners into the spiritual conquerors of the world? It was not the memory of Jesus' life. It was the message, He is risen! And that message alone gave the disciples a living Savior. And it alone can give to us today a living Savior. We shall never have vital contact with Jesus if we attend to His person and neglect the message for the message is what makes him ours. He's alive. He loved me and gave himself for me, and now he lives. Well, one more comment before I end. Machen points out that the root of the dislike of doctrine, doctrine is actually just unbelief, a rejection of the leading articles of Christianity's historic faith. And by rejecting doctrine... They're just concealing the fact, the simple fact, that they don't believe it. So although Christianity is obviously much, much more than doctrine, it is not less. And, in fact, we can't have one without the other. You see that from Ephesians. And by the way, some people today make the opposite mistake, and they try to stuff their minds full of doctrine without leading, it to, a gracious, without leading to a gracious, godly life. Not my point today, but that is the 
Same mistake in reverse. Don't make that same mistake. The Christian life, as it is presented to us, is rooted in doctrines. And with these doctrines, the Christian life has strength and substance. And we cannot do what the liberal project tries to do to still have Christianity without substance. We cannot set point one, doctrine versus life. The second challenge we'll take up is this, doctrine versus Christ. Doctrine versus Christ. To all this, they said, look, we're not trusting in doctrine. We're trusting in Christ. And the liberal project said, look, doctrine is optional. What we must have to have Christianity is Christ. That was a, that was a big challenge. Machen was taken in for that for a while in Germany, as I explained. And, and his professor, which clearly believed different things about Christ, very different things about Christ, still had this devotion second to none. And he, he wondered, does it matter what you believe about Christ or merely what you believe that you believe in Christ? Hmm. It's a hard question. But once again, the answer is this. Liberalism is trying to separate what God has joined together. We know no Christ except that which is in his word. And when people say those things, it's because liberalism has deeply affected the church. My, my old professor, Ligon Duncan, was uh, years ago in a meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society in, Bur- in Birmingham, and uh, these are the leaders and scholars, you understand, of the evangelical church. And the man speaking says, it doesn't matter what you believed about Jesus, so long as you believed in Jesus, you were a Christian. Same teaching. And, uh, and uh, Carl F.H. Henry, his friend, was, was sitting there. Some of you know, know that name, former editor of Christianity Today and... Uh, when the magazine was better off, I think. And, and Carl Henry raised his hand and said, Sir, are, are you telling me that I could believe that Jesus was a 6th century A.D. avatar born in India who taught universal peace and harmony, and I would still be a Christian if I believed in that Jesus? Yes, the man replied, as long as you're sincere. You see, the triumph of the feeling over the fact. As long as you're sincere. Life over doctrine. John the Apostle saw this coming in already in his day. And he wrote, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If someone comes to you and doesn't bring this doctrine, don't receive him into your house or greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Second John 9-11. through 11. You can't separate Christ from the doctrine about Christ. The third and final challenge we'll take up today is this. Paul versus Christ. Paul versus Christ. 
this is where the liberals had to fall back. What, I, what I'm teaching you today, this explanation, was one of the first objections that was raised to this new religion of liberalism when it came into the church, and it was a formidable objection. So how, how did they answer it? By setting Paul against Christ. Okay, they said. Paul taught doctrine. But are we believing in Paul? Or are we believing in Christ? And you talk to people today, Christians of the liberal sort, and uh, you're talking about something and you say, well, what about what, what Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians? And they say, ah, Paul. That's Paul. But you know, Jesus never said that. That is the triumph of liberalism. Trying to divide what the Lord himself has put together. Machen points out that people are really saying that because they believe that Paul was wrong. And so they are trying to have Jesus without all the things that Paul says about Jesus. Machen writes, certainly we're going to remain forever in the gloom if we attend merely to the character of Jesus and neglect the thing that he has done. If we try to attend to the person and neglect the message. If we try to hold on to Jesus, yet reject the gospel. It's not even the case that people actually believe Jesus over Paul, because Machen points out, look, if you press them, they're going to pick and choose what they like in Jesus himself. And what they believe is not Jesus, but themselves. Because Jesus has plenty of teaching that is <clears throat> doctrine. Machen writes, the, the teaching of Jesus was rooted in doctrine. And, and liberal teachers, therefore, are not even taking the whole Jesus. They take Jesus as a model of life and trust, which he is. But the New Testament writers go much further and insist that Jesus is the object of our faith. And thus, liberalism errs in setting Paul against Christ, the third challenge. Is this starting to ring some bells? Explain some mysteries? Sort some things out? This religion that still goes under the name and banner of, of Christian that tries to divide doctrine from life or doctrine from Christ or Paul from Christ. It was very confusing when it came in, but Machen said, no, no, it's a different religion. The words have different meanings, and therefore we must be aware. Now, in conclusion, we have some missionary friends with us today, and so I'd like to conclude with, with this. So much of the controversy in Machen's life revolved around missions and what was happening in missions. Missions became the very test tube where all of this came to the front, where uh, this lack of conviction, this lack of believing and speaking the truth was most revealed. And Machen was eventually thrown out of the ministry of the Northern Church because he helped start an independent board of foreign missions to send out people who believed and preached the Christian truth, the historic gospel, the doctrine that we've been discussing. Machen was very alarmed that two different religions were now being sent into the mission field. 
And to keep the peace, you know what they did on the mission field? They just took the, lo the lowest common denominator approach. They, they devalued doctrine and prioritized social concern. The problem is still with us today. Um, I'll give you a couple extreme examples. Mother Teresa, um, a woman of tremendous compassion and courage who no doubt has done a great deal to alleviate the suffering of India's most um, vulnerable people. She wrote, quote, we never try to convert those who receive aid from us to Christianity, but in our work, we bear witness to the love of God's presence. And if Catholics, Protestants, Buddhists, or agnostics become for this better men, we'll be satisfied. It matters to the individual what church he b belongs to, she writes. But if that individual thinks and believes that this is the only way for God, for her or him, well, this is the way that God comes into their life, his life. If he doesn't know any other way, and if he has no doubt so that he does not need to search, then this is the way to salvation for him. Her 1995 book, A Simple Path, Mother Teresa, one of the most famous missionaries of our day, right? She said, I've always said we should help a Hindu become a better Hindu, a Muslim become a better Muslim, a Catholic become a better Catholic. And she later ex explained in an interview for an article for the Associated Press, of course I convert. I convert you to be a better Hindu or a better Muslim or a better Protestant. Once you've found God... It's up to you to decide how to worship him. And I've, I've sometimes wondered, by the way, you know, how is it that Mother Teresa in particular became such a celebrity? I mean, she, 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 she's done a lot of compassionate work, of course. But uh, others have done just as much, if not more, compassionate work. Why is it that she was the, the darling of the press in the modern age, I, I think it was because she did all those good things saying you don't have to believe anything in particular. And that resonated very much with the spirit of the age that emphasizes life over that D word, doctrine. Machen says, look, this is just not the apostolic pattern. Christian missions, he said, consist primarily in the propagation of a message. Yes, doing good to all men as we are able, but without the message, people may be benefited, but they are lost. So I leave you with this. Our task now as Christians in the 21st century, with this clarity that we should have, is to be the believers and the heralds of good news even if it means we must expose the corruption of man-made, legalistic, hopeless religion. How are we to live in light of these things? Let me suggest six things. First, by learning and mastering, this is the only truth upon which we can build our lives. Second, by living according to that truth every day. Third, by rejoicing in the truth 
Fourth, by joyfully proclaiming the truth to those who do not yet know it. Fifth, by standing up for the truth when others oppose it. And sixth, by not allowing the leaven of false doctrine to continue to infect the whole church. And if, if people really want a godly life to come out, well, let Ephesians show you the way. If that's really what matters, well, I tell you that you can't believe that God sent his son into the world to suffer the death of a cross in order that all those who believe in him might freely have everlasting life. You cannot believe that God has raised him from the dead with a power with which he also gives life to those who trust in him. You cannot believe that God has lavished his saving love on utterly undeserving people like me and you and remain the same. This is the power of a new life. Once you know what God has done, once you know what Christ has suffered and that he lives, once you know that the Holy Spirit has come inside, love and joy and wonder and gratitude and amazement, all compact, will henceforth compel you to present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. This is the way. All other ground is shifting sand. All other ground is shifting sand. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, uh, holy men of God, being moved by the Holy Spirit, have written these things down for our instruction. We, we pray that in this uh, difficult and confusing age, once again, when people are seeking to introduce doubts about this, new theories about that, new meanings for the other thing, that he would bring us back to the only good news the only saving truth, the true knowledge of you as our Father, of Christ, our living Lord, of the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, the one who abides and brings those things of Christ to teach to us. O Holy Spirit, lead us in the truth and in the right way everlasting, and then we shall live the life that pleases you in Christ.